Please open your Bible now to the book of Philemon. As noted in the bulletin, we are, uh, have a few weeks in between the completion of the Canons of Dort and moving towards the Heidelberg Catechism starting up with the new season. So we have a few weeks and I thought we would focus on this short little epistle of Paul the Apostle to Philemon. If you have a pew Bible, you find it on page uh, 1830. 1830. Introduction to a unique epistle. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. To Philemon, our beloved friend and fellow laborer, to the beloved Aphia, Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God, making mention of you always in my prayers, hearing of your love and faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints, that the sharing of your faith may become effective by the acknowledgement of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. For we have great joy and consolation in your love, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed by you, brother. Therefore, though I might be very bold in Christ to command you what is fitting, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you, being such a one as Paul the aged, and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten while in my chains, who once was unprofitable to you, but now is profitable to you and to me. I am sending him back. You therefore receive him, that is, my own heart, whom I wish to keep with me, that on your behalf he might minister to me in my chains for the gospel. But without your consent, I wanted to do nothing, that your good deed might not be by compulsion, as it were, but voluntary. For perhaps he departed for a while for this purpose, that you might receive him forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. If then you count me as a partner, receive him as you would me. But if he has wronged you or owes anything, put that on my account. I, Paul, am writing with my own hand. I will repay, not to mention to you, that you owe me even your, your own self besides. Yes, brother, let me have joy from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in the Lord. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. But meanwhile, also prepare a guest room for me, for I trust that through your prayers I shall be granted to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow laborers, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen.
Paul's letter to Philemon is a rather unique epistle. It's unique in that it is the shortest of all his writings, 25 verses, some 335 words in Greek. It is also one of the few epistles that are addressed to an individual. Most of Paul's letters are addressed to the saints or to the church in such and such a city. Only Timothy, Titus, 3 John, and Philemon are addressed to individuals. This letter is also somewhat distinct in its content. Some of Paul's letters deal with grand doctrinal themes, themes which stretch the mind and tend to overwhelm us at times. Portions of Ephesians, Romans, or Colossians present profound subjects of great depth. By contrast, the epistle to Philemon deals with a very down-to-earth, practical, and personal issue. I don't think it's inaccurate to say that there's no letter that is more personal than this one. There is great feeling in this letter. Philemon, who had been converted through the missionary efforts of the Apostle Paul, had become an active member of the Colossian church. It is thought that he was probably a, a rather wealthy man, and he owned a slave named Onesimus. Onesimus was not a Christian, as was his master, and one day he decided to run away and head for Rome. He probably thought that he could disappear among the multitudes in that vast city. While in Rome, however, by the providence of God, he came in contact with the Apostle Paul. We are not given the circumstances which led up to their meeting, but obviously God directed the events so that somehow Onesimus came to be personally instructed by the Apostle. The Lord opened his heart and the slave, Onesimus, became a son of the living God, a servant of Jesus Christ. His life was radically changed as he came to know the Savior. Onesimus quickly became a dear friend of the apostle. He brought encouragement to him and ministered to him. Paul would have gladly kept him by his side, except he knew that Onesimus had to be re reconciled to his master. You see, a runaway slave was a criminal. Onesimus not only ran away, but there seems to be indication here that he may have also stolen money from his master when he fled, according to verse 18. Now that he was a Christian, he was obliged to return and make things right with his master. Having been forgiven of God, he also had to seek forgiveness and restoration from those he had wronged. Paul did not send him back on his own. He first drafted this brief letter to Philemon, urging him to forgive Onesimus and receive him back into his home. He was not to receive him as a mere slave, but as a new brother in Jesus Christ. Paul wanted Philemon to treat Onesimus as Christ had treated him. Even as Christ had shown mercy to Philemon and forgiven him of all his sin so that he was regarded as perfect and pure in the sight of God, so Philemon must forgive Onesimus and treat him as a brother, a member of the family of God. One of the things we learn from this letter is the importance of forgiveness and the reconciling power of the gospel. 
Today, as we begin this short epistle, we want to reflect upon the first three verses, considering, first of all, the author, secondly, the recipients, and thirdly, the greeting. We begin with the author. Of course, the author is Paul the Apostle. But notice how he begins this letter. He does not address them with his title of apostle. He refers to himself as an apostle in all of his letters except for Philippians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, and Philemon. Usually his apostleship is stated from the outset in order to emphasize his authority. He did not write suggestions. As an apostle, his letters were authoritative. But in this letter to Philemon, it appears that Paul deliberately chose not to emphasize his authority. As an apostle, he could have placed demands upon Philemon and commanded him to do this or to do that. But Paul didn't want Philemon's deeds to be done by compulsion. Instead of commanding him as an apostle, he appealed to him gently and compassionately as a friend and brother. He starts this letter differently from all the others. This is the only letter in which he begins by describing himself as what? A prisoner of Christ Jesus. A prisoner of Christ Jesus. When Paul wrote this letter, his freedom was gone and he was confined to a Roman prison. But notice that he did not refer to himself as a prisoner of Caesar or a prisoner of Rome, but rather a prisoner of Christ Jesus. It was for the cause of Christ and according to the will of Christ that he was a prisoner in Rome. Because of the gospel, he was arrested and incarcerated. But he knew that his future was not in the hands of the emperor or the great rulers and judges of that day. His future was in the hands of Christ Jesus. Paul firmly believed that the universe was under his control and nothing could happen to him apart from the will of Christ. If he was to die, he was prepared to stand before the Lord. If he was to live, he was prepared to serve before the Lord. He knew that his life was not guided by chance, but by the all-wise counsel of the risen and exalted Savior. He who ascended to the right hand of the Father so guides and directs the affairs of the universe so that nothing can happen to us without his knowledge, direction, and consent. Paul was a prisoner, not of Rome, but of Christ Jesus. God had a plan for the apostle, and included in that plan was a life of pain and suffering. Prior to his conversion, he had brought much misery to the lives of other Christians. Just to hear the name of Jesus made him boil inside. He stood and watched as the first faithful martyr, Stephen, was stoned to death. And then we read in Acts 8, verse 3, that Saul made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. He harassed and persecuted the church, thinking that he was doing God a favor. Saul was a deceived man. He thought that he was doing the will of God. He fitted into the Jewish religious system so well. 
But little did he know prior to his conversion that in reality he had been a prisoner of Satan, doing the devil's will and serving his cause. You see, people of God, Satan's ways can be very deceptive. In the history of the church, there have been many like Saul believing that they were servants of God when in fact they were prisoners of the devil. By the grace of God, Saul was struck down on the road to Damascus. While he was in the middle of one of his missions to destroy the name of Jesus, he was stopped in his tracks. The voice of a gracious Savior called to him, and it was from that moment on that Saul the persecutor was transformed into Saul the preacher. He was set apart to proclaim the gospel but he was not promised a life of ease and tranquility. As a Pharisee, he enjoyed a comfortable life and a position of honor. His future was very promising. He was a rising star. He could have risen to a very coveted position in Israel. But the moment he met Christ on the Damascus road, all that was highly prized in the sight of men suddenly lost its value. He went from a persecutor to a preacher, to a prisoner. Congregation Paul came to see that the sufferings of this present world are not worthy to be compared with the glories that shall be revealed. He could say with a psalmist that he would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of his God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness, Psalm 84. He believed that his body was a temple of the Holy Spirit and that he was not his own. He was bought with a price. And therefore, he was to glorify God in his body and in his spirit, which are God's. He experienced deliverance from sin, death, and the bondage of Satan. The shackles were removed and Satan's prison doors were opened. And being liberated from sin and bondage, he was more than willing to be bound for Christ. Brothers and sisters, none of us have been in prison on account of our identification with Christ Jesus. I don't think any of us here have been in prison on account of our identification with Christ Jesus. But the question before you is this. Have you experienced deliverance from sin? Have you been released from Satan's prison? If so, are you living in total submission to your master so that God is glorified in your body? Are you showing undivided allegiance to Jesus Christ? Is your body, mind, time, talents, and possessions devoted to his service? Are you wholly committed to him? Young people, are you wholly committed to him? Guido de Bray, the writer of our Belgian Confession, was arrested and imprisoned for the sake of Christ. While he was in prison, he wrote to his mother and he said, It is as if I hear my master Jesus Christ clearly speak these words to me. Anyone who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. 
God has called me to a holy service, not in the doctrine of men, but to preach the pure and simple word. Do not let it grieve you too much then if God were to take me as a sweet-smelling sacrifice and if he wants my death to strengthen his people. Farewell, my dear mother. May the Lord comfort you in this bereavement. May 19, 1567, your son who loves you dearly, Guido de Bray, imprisoned and in chains for Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I find such words so inspiring. De Bray knew what it was like to be a prisoner of Christ and to offer himself as a living sacrifice to the Lord. While detained in a filthy cell, where fresh air came in only through a small and putrid sewage opening. While the irons on his hands and feet made his flesh raw, Debray said, I quote, I had never thought that God would be so good to such a miserable creature as myself. I am now able to practice that which I so often preached. Congregation of the Apostle Paul, Guido de Bray, and all of God's children who suffer for him, they understand that all the chains and bars in the world cannot take away true, soul-satisfying freedom. The Christian may be bound, yet he is free. Jesus has come to release the captives and to set the prisoners free. Those who are captive to sin and Satan are delivered through him, and not even the worst prison can take away that freedom. And then notice in verse 1 that Paul also includes the name of Timothy. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. Timothy was not necessarily the co-author of this book, but he was present when Paul wrote this letter. Timothy often accompanied him, and it's possible that Philemon knew Timothy personally. The fact that Timothy's name is recorded at the beginning together with Paul shows that he was in complete agreement with the message of the letter. By including Timothy in the introduction, Paul is in effect saying, Timothy is right here with me, and he is in full agreement with what I am saying. And so this letter comes from two prominent men, Paul the Apostle and Timothy, a well-known leader. Elsewhere, Paul speaks of Timothy as his true and beloved son in the faith. Here he is called our brother our brother, having been adopted into the family of God. Then we move secondly from the author of this epistle to the recipients. The recipients. The letter is addressed, first of all, verse 1b, to Philemon, our beloved friend and fellow laborer. As mentioned earlier, Philemon was converted through the witness of the Apostle Paul. In verse 19, Paul mentions that Philemon owes him his very self. Were it not for the preaching of the gospel, Philemon would have been in darkness, traveling the road to hell and perdition. We are led to believe that Philemon was rather well off. 
He owned a house that was large enough for the Colossian church to meet in, and he had, he had been a slave owner. He was likely a financially successful man. Paul speaks of Philemon using two descriptions. Have a look. First of all, he calls him our beloved friend, or more literally, the beloved. Philemon, the beloved. Paul had come to know him quite well and had grown to appreciate and love him. We hope to see more more next Lord's Day why Paul had such an appreciation for this man. But Philemon is called beloved not only because of Paul's love for him, but because of Christ's love for him. He is first and foremost beloved of God. It is because Christ demonstrated his love for him by calling him to to himself and revealing his grace that Paul can now also call him the beloved. Because believers are beloved of God, we are also loved by one another. As brothers and sisters, we are to love one another, not because everyone is so lovable in themselves, but because of the love which Christ has shown to us. A second description that Paul used in verse 1b is fellow laborer. He also used that term elsewhere for those who had worked alongside him in the service of Christ. It is probable that Philemon assisted Paul while he labored in the city of Ephesus. For a time, they may have worked side by side for the furtherance of the gospel. But aside from his actual labor with the apostle, Philemon could still be called a fellow laborer. For whether they literally worked side by side or many miles apart, they both served the same master and sought the same goal. All those who serve the Lord can be called fellow workers, fellow laborers. Christians in Mexico, Ecuador, Australia, or Canada, Christians around the world can be called fellow laborers. We serve the same Lord and seek the same goal, the furtherance of the kingdom of God. Hopefully, congregation, each one of you here today can be called a fellow laborer. If Paul were to have written this letter directly to you, How would he have addressed you as a fellow laborer? You don't have to be a leader in the church in order to be a fellow laborer. In Philippians 4, Paul speaks of two women, Eodia and Syntyche, who labored with him in the gospel. He called them fellow workers, fellow laborers. As Christians, We are to labor for the kingdom of God. All Christians are to be laborers in one way or another. Philemon was a relatively new Christian, yet he knew that it was his task and privilege to serve the Lord. Wherever the Lord places you, you are to work for the glory of God. There are many ways in which you can serve him if you're only willing to be fellow laborers. Are you willing? Are you willing? Then, as we move on to verse 2, we see that although this letter is addressed primarily to Philemon, 
He is not the only one that is mentioned. Paul also addressed the letter to Aphia. Although we cannot be certain of this, most commentators think that Aphia may have been Philemon's wife. That is possible. Paul's letter to Philemon would have an effect on his whole household, and therefore Paul first of all addressed Philemon as leader of his home, but then he also addressed his wife. If Aphia was his wife, then she also had been close to Onesimus, their slave. Therefore, what Paul is about to write is very applicable to her as well. She also must learn to forgive even as Christ had forgiven her. She too must receive Onesimus into the fold, not merely as a slave, but as a brother in Christ. And also as Philemon's partner, she needs to do her part to encourage her husband to receive Paul's words. Wives have a very significant role in the family, right? Although God has designed that the husband be the spiritual leader in the home, the wife plays a very important role in encouraging him to act righteously and faithfully to encourage him to do his duty. A godly wife is a great treasure to any man. A great treasure. Then, in addition to Philemon and Aphia, Paul also addressed this letter to Archippus, verse 2, to Archippus, our fellow soldier. Here again, commentators speculate that this may have been their son. Could it be that Philemon heard the gospel from Paul, shared it with his wife, and the two of them went on to teach their son and pray for the salvation of his soul? Could it be that by the word and spirit, Philemon and his wife watched their son grow to become a fellow soldier? That's what Paul calls him in verse 2, our fellow soldier. We learn from the book of Colossians that Archippus became a minister in the church there. Paul writes in Colossians 4, verse 17, and say to Archippus, Take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord that you may fulfill it. We are not sure if Archippus was Philemon's son, but we are sure that he became a minister of the gospel. He proclaimed the word, and as such, Paul speaks of him as a fellow soldier. Sometimes we sing that hymn, Onward, Christian soldiers marching as to war with the cross of Jesus going on before. Christ, the royal master, leads against the foe. Forward into battle, see his banners go. All those who serve the Lord, and especially those who proclaim his word, can be likened to soldiers. We fight not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness. We fight against one who is far worse than a Hitler or a Stalin. As the gospel is proclaimed, it attacks the strongholds of Satan. We fight not with weapons of man's devising, but we take up the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. As soldiers in God's army, we march ahead. 
bearing the weapon provided by the great commander himself. Christ, the royal master, leads against the foe. We follow him as fellow soldiers in the army of God. And then we also notice in verse 2 that together with Philemon, Aphia, and Archippus, this letter is also addressed to the church in your house. To the church in your house. In our day, we are accustomed to meeting in church buildings. But in the first and second centuries, church buildings as we know them today were non-existent. Believers would hold services in homes. Philemon may have been rather prosperous financially, but it's also evident that he was hospitable. He opened his home for the Colossian church to worship their Lord. He used God's gifts to him for the good of the church. And so this letter, as well as Paul's epistle to the Colossians, would have been read publicly at the assembly in Philemon's house. Although this letter was a rather private letter, he nevertheless wanted it to be read to the entire church. In this way, the whole church would learn from the experience of Onesimus and Philemon how brothers were to forgive and accept one another as pardoned sinners. Also, by reading the letter in the assembly, the church could encourage him to act in a righteous manner. Being part of the church is a wonderful means of accountability. We hold one another accountable, right? We hold one another accountable, encouraging one another to be gracious and to be steadfast in the faith. By addressing this letter to the church, Paul was not only challenging Philemon, but he was also challenging the entire body. So the recipients of this epistle are Philemon, Aphia, Archippus and the church which met in Philemon's house. Which brings us thirdly from the author and the recipients to the greeting in verse 3, the greeting. Notice that Paul's first concern for these people is not their health or their physical and material well-being. What's Paul's greeting to them? Have a look. Verse 3. Grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul pronounces upon the congregation the grace, charis, of God. Apart from grace, he could not call them brothers, beloved, fellow workers, or fellow soldiers. Apart from grace, there would be no church meeting in the house of Philemon. Apart from grace, there would be no release from Satan's prison and no salvation. What is grace? Grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace is the unearned goodness and favor of God to those who deserve the opposite. Grace is the sovereign, freely bestowed, loving kindness of God. It's the only way of salvation for the fallen human race. Grace is unmerited. Grace is free. And then the result of this undeserved favor of God is peace. Irene. 
Peace is the result of the reconciliation of the Christian with God, the fruit of justification. The peace that is spoken of here is, first of all, an objective peace arising from the grace of God. That means that it's more than just a warm feeling inside of you. Peace is the end of war. The Second World War, when the Allies finally conquered, <coughs> when the Allies finally conquered the Germans, there was peace. The war was over. Through Jesus Christ, the enmity between God and redeemed sinners is removed. The hostility is over. God sent his own son into the world to die for sinners. Through that sacrifice, the wrath of God against sin was satisfied. The result? Peace. Peace. Children, do you remember what the angels proclaimed at the birth of Jesus? Glory to God in the highest, Luke 2, 14. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace. The angels declared that people would know peace through him. Jesus spoke of peace to his disciples just before his crucifixion in John 14, verse 27. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. And then after his resurrection, when the disciples were gathered in the upper room, Jesus suddenly appeared to them and said, Peace be with you. Only this time he said it as the one who actually merited peace for them. You see, brothers and sisters, by nature, mankind is at enmity with God. But those who are in Christ Jesus are once again at peace. Isaiah calls our Savior the Prince of Peace. Because of him, the treaty is signed, signed in blood. The war is over. The sin of his people, which is the cause of hostility, is removed. Therefore, God is no longer angry with his children. We can cry out, Abba, Father, because peace has been restored. Paul says in Romans 5, verse 1, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. How? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then congregation. From this objective peace comes also subjective peace, inner peace. The Christian can enjoy serenity and calmness resting in what Christ has done. Resting contentedly in his grace is not being presumptuous. It is honoring the grace of God. It is saying, thank you, Lord. Your grace was sufficient to secure my peace. The Prince of Peace has earned my peace. Paul could endure his imprisonment in Rome because he received the grace of God and was assured of the peace of God. Congregation, are you assured of that grace? And do you know that you are at peace with him?
Apart from His grace, there is no peace. There's no peace for the wicked. There are those who may think they are at peace with God, but it's a false peace, for they've never put their trust in God, their Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. They have not trusted His grace. Those who have not trusted Christ for salvation are yet at war. They may feel at peace, but they are misled. There is no peace. We all know that if you're fighting in a war, you want to have more than a a feeling that you are at peace. You want to know that the treaty is signed. If you merely feel that you are at peace and you step out of the trenches expecting that all is well, you may be shot dead because the war isn't over. There are some who think that they are at peace with God, but they are actually on the way to hell. To be at peace and to enjoy true inner peace, you must trust His grace. That grace is revealed at the cross where the Son of God bore the burden of divine wrath. It was there that peace was secured. Brothers and sisters, this peace spoken of by the apostle is something that this world knows little about. Some people march for world peace. They sing about world peace. They protest the testing of nuclear weapons and so on. But so many do not know the prince of peace. Paul knew him. Philemon knew him. Aphian Archippus knew him. Do you know him? Are you at peace with God? As we began this worship service, you heard the greeting of the Lord, grace to you and peace. Those words come not merely from me as a preacher, but from the Lord himself, he bestows his grace and his peace upon all who repent of their sin and look to him in faith. You may experience trials and persecution as Paul experienced persecution. But if you're a child of God, no one can rob you of his peace. The peace that passes all understanding. And then, brothers and sisters, we should consider the practical implications of grace and peace in how we relate to others. You see, this greeting to Philemon would have been a strong reminder to him that having experienced God's grace through Jesus Christ, he was now called to extend grace to a repentant slave. At the heart of this book is the grace of God in the central characters. Saul of Tarsus was the recipient of grace. Philemon, the prosperous homeowner, was the recipient of grace. And now Onesimus, the slave, regarded as the dregs of Roman society, has become the recipient of grace. What does this mean? It means that they are family. Philemon, Aphia, 
Archippus and the church in Philemon's home are all expected to extend grace to a slave who is now a brother. And as they do so, they will know more fully the subjective peace of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, congregation, nothing, nothing puts people together like the gospel. Those from very diverse backgrounds, cultures, skin colors, interests, occupations, and social standing are drawn together because of the cross. Paul said to the Galatians, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Throughout history, people have hated and killed each other because of race, skin color, and so on. That has gone on since Genesis 3. It's still happening today. But through faith in Jesus, all hostility melts away. Our fellowship is rooted in who Jesus is and what he has done. Nothing, nothing puts people together like the gospel. The church should be a place where we rejoice in grace and peace and a place where we extend grace to others. Are you doing that? Do you come here rejoicing in grace and peace? And do you want this church to be a place in which grace and peace are extended to others? Are you gracious to those who are different than you are? Gracious to those who may be less successful? Gracious to those who are less talented or not as intelligent as you are? Are you gracious to those who may have wronged you in the past? And are you determined to live in peace with the family of God. Are you a peacemaker? Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Congregation, as we reflect upon the grace and peace of God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, may it shape our interaction with each other and bind us together so that the world may see the power of grace and peace in our lives for the glory of Christ, the Prince of Peace. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for this brief epistle showing us, proclaiming to us the power of the gospel, the reconciling power of the gospel. We thank you, Lord, for the apostle who penned these words by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. 
We recognize that even as he was a prisoner of Christ Jesus, so we may also suffer because of our identification with Christ. Help us to do so willingly. Trusting you, knowing that you accomplish your purposes sometimes through trials and pain. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for the message that he communicated of grace and peace. Pray that each one here may know your grace, that unmerited, undeserved favor to those who deserve the opposite. And knowing your grace, may we be assured that we are at peace with you, a holy, just God. Lord, we pray that if, if we have been the recipient of your grace and your peace, that we may display that in our interaction with each other, Lord, we would truly love the family of God. That the gospel would break down barriers. That we would approach each other with kindness, having been forgiven, that we're able to forgive others. Having known your peace, both objectively and subjectively, that we may communicate the way of peace and an attitude of peace to others. And so, Lord, we pray that here in this body we may be known, Lord, for our love for one another, reaching out to each other with that reconciling power of the gospel. May we be determined, each and every one of us, to live in peace with the family of God. So receive our praises, Lord, as we conclude this service, and may we be able to share with one another following the service in the fellowship hall, encouraging each other in the way of peace. In the name of the Prince of Peace, we pray these things. Amen.